Hey, how's it going everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 36 of the Essential X Labs, where we're getting back into the Silver Age, and uh, I'm getting back into my routine, uh, kinda. Um, went on a very, very short vacation, just a, you know, like a two-day thing out of town, and wow, I am discovering that uh, I'm even more of a creature of habit than I initially thought, because... I'm wasted. You know, <laughs> just being out of the house for a couple of days, I am so tired. I am so uh, just uh, not you know, out of sorts, you know. It's weird, very, very weird. But a lot of hustle and bustle the past couple of days. Uh, the wife and I went up to a wedding in uh, uh, right outside of Minneapolis, Minnesota, about 45 minutes north of a place called Rush City. I had a uh, really good time up there. It was a gorgeous ceremony. Uh, you know, it is uh, October, and so it's fall, and uh, places that aren't Arizona, or at least the Phoenix area, are very, very pretty in the fall. <laughs> you know, things are gold and yellow, and, and just uh, the trees look like they're just on fire with the, uh, the beautifully colored leaves. We don't, we don't get that here. Uh, so it's a, uh, it was quite a treat to be able to go up there. The ceremony itself was also uh, just a, a beautiful ceremony. Uh, this was one of my wife's friends, uh, which shouldn't come as much of a surprise since I don't really have any of those. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it was, it was a really good time. Um, I think the only the only complaint I would have about the entire trip was uh, the hotel. The hotel, we stayed in a casino that was nearby, and uh, this used to be a smoking casino. And uh, you could tell because, oof, I mean, you were just hit with the... Uh, the fine aroma of uh, decades-old uh, cigarettes. It's certainly not ideal. It's uh, the reason why, like, if I see a picture of something that looks like it smells really bad, like a location or something, my go-to is that, hey, it looks like it smells like casino carpet. <laughs> and, uh, boy, this casino smelled like uh, casino carpet. And the carpet was also quite sticky, which, um, yeah, you have to wear your shoes until you literally get into bed. It was... Uh, yeah, not ideal. It reminded me of uh, the George Collin joke about uh, New Jersey, where he talks about taking a woman on a date, and uh, he says, you know, kiss her where it smells bad, which, I mean, could be taken a lot of different ways, but then he follows up with, take her to New Jersey. My wife didn't appreciate when I kind of changed the wording to, of that to, uh, <laughs> to name the hotel we were staying at. But other than that, I really didn't have any, uh, any complaints about the visit. It was very, very nice. Uh, I've never even been to, you know, that area of the country. I've been on the coasts and a couple of places in the Midwest for quick visits, but never never up there, and it was it was pretty cool. Um, I wish it was a little colder up there. You know, coming from Arizona, you expect that everywhere else is going to be, like, a lot colder, and it really wasn't. I mean, it was, it was very nice. It was, like, 75-ish degrees, which, you know, that's a, that's a holiday in Arizona, but uh, when you get somewhere else and you, you're expecting it to be a bit colder, it's a little bit of a letdown when it's, you know, just beautiful, right? <laughs> when it's just nice weather. Uh, you know, we brought our sweatshirts and stuff, and we wanted to we wanted to experience like an actual fall day, and yeah, it didn't quite happen that way. I did get to visit a foreign comic book store, which is, it's always fun to do that. We've talked about that before on other programs where... You know, those comic shops that are outside of your normal, you know, transit circle are always, I don't know, they're kind of like magical and mysterious because you always assume that they have the stuff that you need, you know? It's like you've seen all the ones nearby and 
there are those you know white whales or there are those just holes in the collection you just can't fill because i mean this isn't the 90s anymore it isn't even the 2000s anymore so back issues aren't aren't quite coming in with the with as much regularity as they used to back in the day so back issue bins aren't being replenished quite as much anymore so if i'm looking for a book and it ain't there good chance that it won't be there anytime soon right and at the same time i'm sure my area is flush with issues that folks in you know other cities are looking for you know trying to track down and here you know i've got a bunch of them and uh their local shops might not have any so it's interesting, you know, it takes me back to being a kid, you know, back in the early 90s where maybe on a weekend you'd be able to convince your mom or dad to take you a little bit further, you know, like there maybe there's a comic shop 20 minutes away, <laughs> which I mean seems silly now since I'm driving, I'll, I'll drive an hour and a half to a comic book store now, but when you're a kid, you know, you can ride the bike, you can walk, you know, you're gonna, you're gonna hit the places that are within, you know, kid traveling distance. But maybe on a weekend you'll be able to convince someone to take you a little bit further, right outside your 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 sphere of influence in as far as what comic shops you can actually get to with regularity. And you get so excited getting there, and you hope that there's you know that one thing you're looking for. And sometimes you're you know sometimes you're pleased, sometimes you're disappointed, and whatever the case, uh, you know it's exciting. It's exciting. It's an experience. It's something that you'll you'll remember because it's just a little bit novel, a little bit different. Now that said, we were on a bit of a time crunch, so I had to choose wisely. Like where where was I going to stop? Because I don't know Minneapolis all that well. I'm sure that there's quicker ways to get through it than you know typing an address into you know your iPhone like a like a regular old tourist. But I had to choose wisely. I had to pick the one that I wanted to get to, lest we you know miss our flight home. So I checked out some of the social media presences for the locations out there. I also uh, reached out to folks on social media to see if they had any of their favorite shops that they could recommend me. And the one that came back from a few people was a place called Comic Book College uh, in Minneapolis. And so, you know, before we left, I did a little bit of research to see uh, if this is the one that I was going to make sure I visited. And uh, boy, upon checking them out, I discovered that they were an actual comic book shop and not just a place where uh, they sold Funko Pops and maybe had a couple of comic books off to the side or in a dark corner that is uh, very seldom visited, but uh, this was an actual comic shop. I saw on their uh, website that they had over a hundred thousand back issues, which, I mean, that's just the siren's call for me, right? You hear back issues and, okay, I'm there. I'm there. And that's not to denigrate any of the other shops in the area, but this one... Definitely stood out in as far as having uh, a wide selection of back issues. And as I mentioned, I believe it was in um, Original Recipe X Lapsed, where, uh, which book did a... I think we were talking about X-Men Unlimited, so it was the most recent episode. I, like I said, I'm a little out of sorts here. I just don't remember where I'm at and what I, uh, what I recently did. So I think it was the X-Men Unlimited episode of uh, X Lapsed where I talked about a recent white whale that I had, and that was X-Men Black Magneto. It's a, a nothing special book. It's not even that old. It's a book that, from all accounts, should be easy to find. And indeed, I mean, if I were going to look online, I'd be able to find it with you know absolutely no trouble. But I wanted this issue, as it was the last one I need for the, the color era. It was the last book of the color run that I needed. And I just couldn't find it anywhere. I couldn't find it anywhere in town. 
I did manage to find a copy of it at a local store, but it was part of a bundle with the rest of the X-Men Black one-shots, and it was something like 30 bucks. and, I mean, the sad part is I actually considered it. You know, I'm sitting there like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend 30 bucks for this one issue? Come on. I mean, couldn't actually pull the trigger, but I actually did pick it up off the stand just to, to hold, and I was like, okay, well, maybe I'll do this. We'll see if there's anything else here that catches my eye, and if not, maybe I'll, maybe I'll get this, but... Thankfully, you know, um, I didn't. <laughs> I decided against it because I actually did find it in uh, Minneapolis. I found X-Men Black Magneto. It's just 50 cents over cover price, which, I mean, uh, you know, you're paying that for the bag and board, I guess. But I was beyond pleased to find it. Like I said, it's nothing special. It's not like I found some, you know, Silver Age gem or a Claremont burn issue that had uh, eluded me for a while. It was a... Uh, just a recent nothing happening issue that I doubt I'll read anytime soon. But uh, it did uh, finish up my color run, so I was very, very happy to get it. Another nothing happening book I managed to find there was a, a weird one Doom Patrol Weight of the Worlds number four, which was the only issue from that run that I needed because it just sold out everywhere. I ordered it, I pre ordered it. It's a Doom Patrol book. I always pre order Doom Patrol books. So I ordered it from DCBS ahead of time and. Uh, they just never sent it. So I reached out to them a few times, and rather than giving me like an explanation as to why I didn't get it, they just canceled it. They canceled my order, they credited it back, and I'm like, I didn't want that. I wanted the damn book, <laughs> you know? Uh, so I figured, okay, well, they didn't have it, and I had to go around to the local shops to see if I could find it. And nobody had it. Nobody had it. It was the, you know, it was the penultimate issue of that miniseries, and I guess it was the least ordered book of the miniseries, so nobody had it. And Doom Patrol is one of those uh, series that I am you know, very much a completionist on, so no matter what it is, I'm going to get it, regardless if I like it or not, which, uh, I mean, with this Young Animal stuff, if you listen to the Young Animal shows, you'll know that uh, Reggie and I ran hot and cold on this, uh, this run of Doom Patrol, the Gerard Way stuff, so this was more of that. Wasn't necessarily looking forward to it. I only read the first issue of the miniseries. Wasn't too terribly impressed with it. I just collected it to collect it, basically, because my Doom Patrol collection is... Uh, I mean, there's very few holes in my Doom Patrol collection. So when I found out I wasn't going to be getting issue four, I called around to some local shops, and a lot of them didn't even realize there was a Doom Patrol miniseries out. So that uh, didn't bode well for me. And, I mean, I looked at used bookstores, looked everywhere, all my usual haunts, and... Uh, you could find a lot of copies of uh, Doom Patrol Way to the Worlds number one, but anything after that, maybe number five too. Number five seemed to have been a uh, a more widely ordered issue, I guess, since it was the conclusion. So one and five you could find. Anything else, you were really uh, you were really hunting, and uh, I did manage to find uh, Way to the Worlds number four in Minneapolis. So that was another you know semi white whale that I was able to uh, slot into the collection. So yeah, it was not only just a fun trip, but it was also uh, one that helped me fill in some holes in the collection. And, you know, one thing we were really uh, kind of nervous about, this was our first uh, flight post-COVID, right? So this is the first time we've gone anywhere in this uh, in this new normal. And we were kind of worried as to how this was going to be handled on the uh, plane and in the airport and how strict they were going to be on things like masks and, you know, just uh, safety protocols, right? 
And while uh, social distancing was kind of uh, an afterthought, <laughs> you know, they have these, they've got these circles, right, where you're supposed to stand on these circles. They're six feet ahead, apart from the person in front of you and behind you. But it's like one of those bank mazes. So you might be six feet separated from whoever's in front of you and behind you. But as the thing serpentines, right, you're basically shoulder to shoulder with whoever is on the other edge of that, you know, serpentine, you know, curve as you're weaving your way through to uh, security. So, yeah, I guess they tried. <laughs> I guess it was uh, good for appearances to have those circles on the ground. But, uh, yeah, kind of, uh, kind of useless since, you know, you could basically, you know, smell the breath of whoever's standing, you know, on the other curve as you, even through the mask. So, yeah, they tried. Um, they did enforce masks, though, which was, uh, which was uh, you know, it set us at ease. You know, on the plane, we had to wear the masks the entire time, even in between bites of food. You know, that's uh, one of the things that they were very strict about. So you could take a, you could pop a pretzel in your mouth, but then you had to, you know, put the mask back on as you chewed it, which a pain in the ass to be sure, but uh, I didn't, uh, I didn't mind. Anyway, that was the past couple days of my life here, but, um, well, we're not here to talk about that, right? We're here to talk about the other half of that cool, cool can story <clears throat> over in the Silver Age X-Men book here. Let's, let's hop right in here. I'll quit vamping. This is X-Men number 26, November 1966, cover date. The story is called Holocaust. Script, Roy Thomas, pencils, Werner Roth, inks, Dick As, lead is Sam Rosen, colors, someone who really likes the color yellow. Mayan headdresses by Irving Forbush, edits by Stan Lee, cover price is 12 cents American. Now, it's been a while since we covered this book here, so let's, uh, hopefully we'll hit the ground running, right? We open... With Professor X and Cerebro, where the threat has finally come into focus here. Remember, we didn't know exactly what this was, right? Now, Cerebro's projection shows that the big bad here is, of course, Kukul Ken, who, do I need to remind you, is, you know, not a mutant. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, Xavier cannot believe the uncanny power of the former LT Gray and prays it's not too late to stop him. Speaking of stopping him, let's cut back to the museum where Cyclops is still being held at gunpoint by the bedazzled Rent-A-Cop. Now Cyclops manages to reach up to tilt his visor open just a tad before unleashing a focused yellow optic blast at the guard's gun, shattering it to smithereens. He then shoves the poor old man to the ground to make his approach toward our newly deified baddie. Cyclops then unleashes yet another yellow optic blast at Cuckoo, which ricochets off his chest and uh, doubles back into Slim's gut, knocking him unconscious. By now, Ramon and the other one report that they'd just taken out the other three X-Men. They also stupidly reach for Cuckoo Can's shiny cursed pendant, claiming that they could probably pawn the thing for a mint, and Cuckoo Can swaps, swats them away. Now, this causes them both to draw their weapons, which are, of course, the machete and bolo, respectively, and they attack. The big bad wastes no time incinerating them both with a blast consisting of the heat of the sun itself. Kukul Can then climbs out the roof of the museum, crafts a solar energy sphere gimmick, and then proceeds to float back to Central America. Now, evidently, his pendant had something to do with the conquest of the Mayans 400 years prior, and he intends to, uh, I don't know, take him over again? I don't know. Uh, Stan drops a footnote here to apologize to all the science students out there about this solar bubble. Though I 
bet that he'll still get some angry letters about it. Um, now, as Kukul Khan has left the museum, he is no longer mentally blocking Professor X from reaching out to his charges. And I, I, I don't know if I made that clear. Uh, Kukul Khan was able to mentally block Professor X from reaching out to his charges. Anyway, Chuck can now reach out, and so he does. He reaches a groggy but conscious Iceman and instructs him to round up the rest of the X-Men. He finds Angel, who still has that dart sticking out of the back of his neck, though it looks like uh, looks more like a full-blown arrow. <laughs> like he's literally got an arrow sticking out of the nape of his neck. Uh, they then find Beast, who's trying to wake up the dazed Cyclops. Oh, and we can see Ramon and the other one laying there, too. Uh, they might be dead, or they might just be resting. In any event, this will be the last time we ever see them, so uh, leave the memories alone, I guess. Scene shift to Metro College. Professor X calls Jean over the phone to ask if uh, she can find him any books about Mayan history and legends in the school library. And she's all over it. But she wonders why he actually called her instead of using his telepathy. And she takes this as like kind of a slight, like to mean that she's no longer a member of the team. Just then, creepy Ted Roberts saunters in to once again ask Jean for a date. But he's not alone. Hmm, with him is a uh, familiar face. Cal Rankin, the ever-loving mimic. Now, Gene instantly recognizes the mind-swiped former baddie, and uh, Cal sorta, kinda recognizes Gene. Enough to give us a couple of those don't-I-know-you-from-somewhere sorta panels, anyway. Gene denies that they'd ever met before, which only makes Rankin want to get to the bottom of this familiarity even more. Anyway, Gene takes a rain check on the date, seeing as though she has some official X-Men associate business to attend to. Speaking of the X-Men, let's head back to the mansion. There, Xavier has Hank, Warren, and Bobby looking at a map of Central America, citing the fact that the first half of the pendant was found in San Rico, which I don't know how Xavier would even know that. Uh, whatever the case, he somehow knows that's where the, pan the pendant originated, and so that's where he's going to be sending the X-Men to search. Oh, and it's here that Jean arrives with all the Mayan history books that Xavier didn't actually need after all. I guess that's not entirely true. He does take a peek at the texts, only long enough to confirm that the pendant comes with a dread curse. Which, I mean, we already knew that, right? But I suppose this is new and somewhat useless information for the X-Men. It's worth noting that Jean is a bit worried when she doesn't see Scott. Uh, he's recuperating from blasting himself, you see. Shortly, he does emerge from an adjoining room to let his teammates know that he's doing okay, as he has a, a certain degree of immunity to his own optic blasts. And you know, with as many times as we've seen him block his blasts with his hands, I'd have guessed he has complete immunity to it. Otherwise, he probably wouldn't have any hands left. Anyway, Gene is overjoyed at seeing Scott and is super pleased that he's okay. From here, the four remaining X-Men and Professor X take off from yet another X-Jet that takes off from Charles Xavier's backyard. As they take off, Scott thinks to himself that uh, he thought he sensed something from Jean when they saw each other. And so he vows here to tell her exactly how he feels about her after this mission. And I ask you, what could possibly go wrong here, huh? I gotta wonder what Xavier, who is almost definitely reading Scott's thoughts without permission, thinks about this. Hmm. Anyway... Let's jump into recent flashback land and look at what happened when Kukul Khan arrived back at San Rico. Well, he uses his solar powers to clear a bunch of foliage, which uh, reveals the Sunstone, a giant yellow gemstone that sits atop a statue of a plumed serpent. 
This sunstone seems to amplify his powers even more. He then clears even more foliage, revealing an ancient Mayan kingdom. He takes a seat on the throne and uses a hypnotic spell to sort of, like Pied Piper, a gaggle of locals to the location. Once there, we see the locals mining for gold, which, I mean, that's like the go-to to depict uh, slavery in the Silver Age, right? I mean, it's what Lucifer had done as well, right? Anyway, by this point, the X-Men have landed, and, uh, and guess what? Professor X reveals that he can't go into the fray with them. What's more, he probably won't even be able to assist them psychically, which I feel like he gives this speech every single time, but then he, like, swoops in at the last moment to save the day anyway and get all the credit. Oh well, maybe this time will be different. So, our four remaining X-Men load into a rowboat and head downstream toward the new Mayan kingdom. It's worth noting that Angel has noticed the mutual hot pants between Scott and Jean, and has been pretty short and dismissive of his field leader. He does apologize for being a jerk as they hop into the boat. Uh, we might... We might just see this schism grow as we work our way through. Uh, I mean, could this be the original X-Men schism? Hmm. Anyway, along the river, Roy realizes he hasn't included enough action in the issue, and so uh, he has our strange teens attacked by a jaguar. How do you say that word? Do you say jaguar or jaguar? I, I, I say jaguar. I don't know. Iceman holds it off with an ice fork, and uh, Warren grabs it by the tail and tosses it like a half mile. <laughs> it's like a cartoon here. And I mean... Isn't Cyclops right there? Couldn't he have just blasted the big cat with, an, uh, with a red or yellow optic beam? Uh, anyway, Warren flies around a bit before returning to the boat, because, uh, you see, he really loves flying. He loves the wind in his feathers. Anyway, the little rowboat has uh, hit some rocky rapids at this point, which is also infested with alligators. Which makes me wonder, do alligators really like to hang out in the rapids? I didn't think they were such thrill-seekers. I just thought they liked to eat things. Anyway, Angel grabs Scott and flies him to safety. Kid Cool ice slides away from the uh, alligator threat. And Beast, like, pitfall harries over the uh, gators here. Like, literally, like, waiting for them to close their mouths so he jumps on their heads, like pitfall. Anyway, once on dry land, Hank climbs a tree to get a better look at the place. And he sees that they're not far out from this new, or I guess rediscovered, Mayan kingdom. He proceeds to slide down a vine, which is actually a giant boa constrictor, the snake smiles at him, but doesn't actually do anything. Like, this isn't a threat. It's just a, a snake being like, hey, yeah, happy to help out. I don't know. Our heroes then uh, make their way into the city, but they're spotted by one of Kukulkan's guards, and so a trap is sprung. The X-Men fall into a hole in the ground and get covered by a net. I mean, it's always a friggin' net, isn't it? Uh, anyway, the X-Men are then surrounded by these Mayans, I guess? And so Iceman blocks off their spears with an ice shield. He, like, covers the top of the, uh, of the pit that they're in. From here, we go into full dig-dug mode again, as Cyclops blasts a tunnel so they can burrow their way out. Once topside, they're behind the natives, and they, they toss them into the hole, which I, I guess the ice has melted. I don't know. From here, the X-Men finally make their way toward the pyramids. And I feel like we've been discussing this issue for, like, 150 years now. Our heroes are spotted, and it's time for a fight. Oh, and uh, Cyclops' optic blasts still have a fair amount of yellow in them. I don't know. Alright, so the X-Men fight some guards, which draws Kukulkan out, and he basically wipes the floor with our heroes. In the fracas, Cyclops accidentally nails Warren in the back with a fully red optic blast. And I mean, this isn't the first time this has happened, right? 
Anyway, while our baddie is tied up with Scott and Warren, Beast and Iceman take note of the strange plumed serpent statue with the great big yellow diamond in it. Hank suggests that Iceman maybe ice up the gem, and so he does. Now this causes Cuckoo Can's powers to wane, and leads to the baddie accidentally blasting the base on which the serpent statue sits. The base crumbles and the statue falls deep into the ground below. Then somehow the entire kingdom crumbles and erupts into flames at the same time. Hank snags the pendant, Cuckoo Can is back to being regular old LT Grey, and as the boys walk away from the wreckage, Angel wakes up and he calls Scott out for blasting him on purpose. Because, you know, they both have the hot pants for Ms. Jean Grey. And we wrap up with Scott wondering if uh, perhaps a part of him did want to blast Warren on purpose. And that is where we leave it. Next time out, the Mimic returns. And you know, now I'm suddenly very, very happy that I spent so much time talking about my mini vacation there because uh, I don't have much to say about this issue. (laughs) I feel like... uh, This is more of the same for this era. Uh, The only thing that really separates it from previous stories here is the fact that Professor X did not, as far as we know, slide in to get all the credit at the end here. He, for some reason, took the flight with them, but uh, didn't actually come in to save the day and swoop, you know, victory out of the hands of our young heroes here. I'd say that the highlight of this issue is probably the uh, interpersonals among the the young X-Men here. I like that uh, we are, it's like we're kind of putting the Cyclops-Gene relationship onto the front burner, but at the same time, we're putting some uh, semi-organic feeling obstacles in the way, right? They take off on this trip, or Cyclops does anyway, and he vows that, you know, once once this is all said and done, once the dust settles from this El Tigre deal, he's going to uh, admit his feelings. He's going to pursue a relationship, despite the fact that he is, uh, I mean, the whole reason he hasn't to this point was his dread optic blasts, right? He doesn't want to endanger someone that he cares about. And here we are with this, you know, final uh, final adventure, this final obstacle in his way before he admits his, his love for Jean Grey, where his optic blasts prove to be dangerous to someone that he cares about. He accidentally, or maybe not so accidentally, blasts Warren in the back. And whether or not it was accidental is kind of a moot point, because Warren here, in between bouts of unconsciousness, calls him out for it. So, I mean, I guess perception is reality, right? He says, Scott, you blasted me on purpose because we're competing for the same girl. And Iceman and Beast don't say anything. (laughs) They stay out of it. They've got their own female troubles to worry about at this point. They're not going to get involved with this mess. So they don't come to Scott's aid. They don't. They don't come to Warren's aid. It's just kind of. It's kind of left hanging out there, to where Cyclops has to deal with it. He has to digest it and kind of, kind of really do some soul searching, and wonder if whether or not Warren is saying what what Warren is saying is true. Maybe part of Scott did want to bless Warren. Maybe part of Scott wanted to remove Warren from the equation. Maybe he saw Warren as a threat to uh, to his happy ending with Jean Grey. I, I kind of dig that. As far as the Kukul Can stuff, I mean, that was that was some boring, boring stuff here. Uh, I'm guessing, and I make this joke often, but um, I'm guessing maybe maybe Roy Thomas got the uh, the Mayan volume of the encyclopedia this time out, and he's really wanted to share some of the stuff he learned. 
I don't know. In any, whatever the case, it was a, uh, it was not the most intriguing of stories, but I guess it did facilitate, uh, you know, the the schism between Warren and Scott forming here, and we'll see how that uh, continues as we work our way through. I was pretty surprised that uh, Cal Rankin is back so soon. Um, I couldn't remember when he. I knew he came back, and I know some of the beats that uh, we're going to be heading into, but I, I could have sworn it was. Like several months down the line I didn't think it was quite this soon uh, We do get the promise that uh, the Mimic will be back next issue I don't know if it's just some more of Cal's backstory Or if this is when he's, you know, back to full power And he's uh, like an official member of our team I guess we will uh, we'll cross that bridge when we get to it And we'll find out uh, next time out But I think that's about all I have to say about this issue The the fighting bits, the superhero bits here were very... Eh, you know, very procedural But the uh, interpersonals were where this one really shined And it's nice to see that coming to the forefront Because I feel like that's kind of been backburnered a bit And as an ex-fan of later eras I mean, the soap opera is a huge part of what makes the X-Men the X-Men So to see that start to percolate here a little bit uh, more That's really cool stuff That's really cool stuff So, um... Not the greatest issue, of course. We still had the El Tigre stuff to deal with, but um, in as far as uh, important moments uh, between team members, uh, there's one worth checking out. There's certainly one worth checking out. But from here, let's head into the uh, letters page here, and uh, we got a new name. The letters page has a new name, and it is the Mutant Mailbox. How about that? Now we start with a letter from Bruce in Virginia. Now, Bruce loved issue number 23 because it had the X-Men fighting actual villains and not robots or people from outer space. Wow, what, what is this guy, me? Huh. Though, I mean, in fairness, there hasn't really been much of that, right? Not, not a whole lot. Uh, maybe it was just the one-two punch of the Sentinel story and Lucifer. That was a bit too much for Bruce. I could totally see that, and uh, I can also empathize with that feeling. Now, Bruce suggests that they change the name of the letters page to The Mutant Mailbox. Huh. Well, Stan says that there's been a trillion people, well, now a trillion and one, who have suggested changing the letters page to The Mutant Mailbox. And so it is written, so it shall come to pass. Ipso facto, yada, 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 it's now The Mutant Mailbox. Thank you to Bruce and a trillion others. Next up, John in Tennessee. Now, you'll remember like a hundred years ago where we read that letter where some dude created a baseball team out of the Marvel heroes? No? <laughs> well, trust me, we did. Uh, well, this fella decided to draft up an opposing team comprised of Marvel villains. So, uh, hold on to your hats, gang. Here we go. First base, Sandman on account of his stretching ability. Second base, Scorpion for no real reason. Third base, the Black Knight because he's swift. Shortstop is the Cobra because nothing gets past him. Left field is the Green Goblin. Center field is the Vulture. Right field is the Beetle because all three can go airborne. The pitcher is the Executioner because he's strong. The catcher is the Juggernaut because he's strong. The team manager is J. Jonah Jameson. Their cheerleaders are Enchantress, Black Widow, Medusa, and Doctor Doom. Well, Vic ain't going to be too happy about that. Uh, Bat Boy will be Loki, and the backups are Hydra. Now, Stan, remembering that he's printing this in an X-Men comic, suggests that Magneto might be selling hot dogs in the bleachers, because, you know, someone's got to mention Magneto, right? Next up, we got Marianne in Ohio. 
Now, she says if Jean really leaves the X-Men, she is going to leave Marvel. She's going to cross the street and start reading Brand Ech books. And, uh, by the way, um, it's probably worth noting here that X-Men number 23 was Marianne's fourth comic book ever. So, uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> gatekeeping, right? Uh, now, she thinks the X-Men have the best villains out there. She loves Scott, and she feels bad for him about his love for Jean that he cannot pursue. Now, she wants Vera and Zelda to discover the X-Men's secret identities. To which Stan asks Marianne, who he refers to as Pussycat, he asks her to stick around a bit longer as all of her gene worries will disappear. So, uh, way to give it away, Stan. Way to give it away. Next, we got Ted in British Columbia. Now, he uses a bunch of X words to talk about how much he loves the X-Men, like extraordinary, exemplary, you know, all the, all the X words that I, you know, sometimes I'll put into my social media to be clever, and, you know, it, it really isn't, but it is what it is. Now, Stan thanks him, using some X words of his own, and uh, you know what? Maybe that Steve Harvey guy uh, was right a few issues back. Uh, some really, really awful letters managed to get published. Ed in Wisconsin. Now, Ed's a longtime Marvel fan and reader. And has thus far remained, uh, I suppose, what we might call a lurker today in the uh, letters pages. Now, he hasn't been inspired to pick up his pen just yet. Not to lick a stamp, not to head to the mailbox. Until now. Hmm, you see, he's worried about the Marvel heroes appearing on TV. As he fears that they'll become the objects of scorn for the, quote, serious-minded television viewer, unquote. The what now? (laughs) Serious-minded television. Television viewer uh, He worries that this might cause Marvel to become A laughing stock Hmm Now Stan uses this letter that he totally Didn't write himself as an opportunity To plug the upcoming Marvel animated Series that will be appearing on a Television station near you Next up Fred in New York Now he loved seeing the blurbs on the cover Of X-Men number 23 And he thinks Werner is improving And I, I gotta agree I haven't had to point out any pages that uh, I didn't like in quite a while now. Just a little bumpy start, but uh, I think he's doing all right. Now, uh, what's his face here? Fred, he takes issue with the house ads in Marvel mags, claiming that they're always about Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four, and he would like to see some variety. And, uh, yeah, same as it ever was, right? I mean, it's not like the Fantastic Four get a whole lot of house ads, but uh, Spider-Man sure does, and I guess we can say the Avengers do. It's... Basically, anything they can make a movie out of is going to get the uh, going to get the press. So, hmm. uh, anyway, uh, Fred would like to see some variety, is all. He's uh, happy to see Spidey is appearing in the Daredevil mag, and he wants to know what's up with Iron Man and Namor. I mean, if only those characters had books he could check out, like every month. Uh, Stan says that he'll take this under advisement and print the results of the bullpen deliberation in the next issue of the Congressional Register. To which, come on, Stan, why you got to be like that? This guy has a valid point. Don't be a jerk. Uh, Next up, Jerry in California. Uh, He says sometimes the X-Men's costumes are blue and gold. Other times they're black and gold. What's up with that? And he loved X-Men number 22. And he wonders what special material Cyclops' visor and sunglasses are made of. And uh, offers a no prize of his own to get an answer, which uh, that's not how it works, Jerry. You don't have access to the no prizes. Uh, Stan promises that we'll be learning a lot more about Cyclops and his powers very, very soon. Now we wrap up with the letter that I've tried to uh, <laughs> tried to deliver several times here. It's written by two people, Steve and Jan, and I've called them Stan and Jeeve like a hundred times now. So Steve and Jan in Virginia. Now they threaten to repeal Stan's no-prize license because he's given them away too frequently. 
And Stan goes, oh yeah, I dare you to. I dare you to repeal it. So uh, Stan, he's, uh, you're going to have to pry his no prize ability out of his cold, dead hands. He's not giving that up for anything. And I, I bet you Steve and Jan have never been heard from again. You just don't step to Stan. You just don't. But those are our letters. From here, we hop into the bullpen bulletins, otherwise known as earth-shattering essays, eloquent epithets, and exaggerated endorsements, which you can easily live without. Now, our first item is Gene Colan taking over Daredevil permanently. Now, this will allow John Romita to focus solely on The Amazing Spider-Man. A new bullpen luminary will be taking over for Gene Colan on the Submariner strip, and uh, we got here Jerry Grandinetti, who you might know from his body of work, uh, war and horror books over at Brand Ech, and he'll be covering the next issue, though that'll be the only one. From there, the title will be taken over for a while by Bill Everett, the creator of Namor, and if you're following X-Lapsed Point One, you'll, you'll know a little bit about Mr. Bill Everett and his earliest uh, adventures with Namor the Submariner, which are absolutely insane. The next item is a reminder that Marvel heroes are coming to your TV screens. Stan cites WWOR in New York, the old Channel 9, that's already all aflutter with promos for Marvel animated series. So how about that? Uh, another item here, 25 cent specials. Uh, they are a thing. Please buy them so Stan can stop writing about them. Item. Stan himself wrote the next installment of Doctor Strange which he suggests will be a perfect jumping-on point because it'll catch y'all up on everything that's come before. Stan also makes sure to promote Bill Everett's art on the strip as being some of the best yet, which is to say, better than Steve Ditko. Item. Stan shines a light on some unsung heroes of Marvel. We got Marty Goodman, the publisher, Johnny Hayes, the circulation manager, Chip Goodman, uh, I'm I'm sure there's no relation to Marty there, as a Marvel merch director, Arthur Jeffrey, the MMMS director. I didn't know the fan club needed one, but they got one. Nancy Murphy is in charge of subscriptions. Doris Siegler is the bookkeeper, so um, three cheers for them, I guess. Our final item. Stan says he's gotten mountains of letters hoping to see a battle between the Hulk and Namor. And seeing as though they share a book, it should be pretty easy to pull off. Uh, Stan decided against it anyway, but suggests it'll probably happen sooner or later. And he asks the readers who should draw this titanic clash and offers up names such as Gene Colan, Bill Everett, and even Jack Kirby. So what say you, dear listener? Who would you like to see draw the uh, first titanic clash between Namor and the Hulk? Surely we could probably just Google and find out who did it, but uh, eh, we'll play along. Why not? Let's head into our mighty Marvel checklist here to close out the bullpen bulletins here. We got Fantastic Four number 57, in which Doctor Doom is back. It's also more in humans and the Silver Surfer too. So, uh, two out of three ain't bad. Spider-Man number forty-three has the origin of the Rhino and more Mary Jane. Avengers thirty-four uh, offers a brand new villain, and it's uh, the Living Laser. Daredevil number twenty-two is a supervillain riot. Thor one thirty-four has uh, the People Breeders. The what now? Okay. Strange Tales one fifty-one. Nick Fury captive of Hydra. And uh, Stan and Wild Bill Everett on Doc Strange, as mentioned in the uh, bullpens here. He's uh, offering up a you know jumping-on point issue or story, I suppose, uh, with art better than Ditko, apparently. Uh, Suspense 84 is the most dramatic Iron Man story ever. And uh, Captain America, hey, stop me if you heard this one, he's still fighting the friggin' Adaptoid. Yay. Uh, Tales to Astonish 86. Submariner, Krang, and Lady Dorma do something. 
and Hulk versus a menace he cannot overcome, which will not be Namor the Submariner, I suppose. Sergeant Fury number 36, uh, more Nazis. Uh, Stan suggests that this one might be controversial. Marvel Collector's Item Classics number 6 features reprints. Marvel Tales number 5 features reprints. And Fantasy Masterpieces number 5 offers reprints, but a more Golden Age Captain America, so I guess that's uh, maybe a little bit more special than uh, just a couple of stories that are just a year or two old being reprinted. Anyway, let's jump to the very bottom of the page and uh, learn who has joined the ranks of the Merry Marvel Marching Society. 26 new members. Nobody really stands out as being uh, worth mentioning, but uh, I'm sure they all had really good time and enjoyed their welcome packages and all that good stuff. If we look at the adjoining page here, there's more stations announced as uh, carrying the Marvel animated specials. It's still an incomplete list, but we do have stations listed as being in Harrisonburg, Virginia, Evansville, Indiana, Springfield, Massachusetts, Little Rock, Arkansas, Tampa, Florida, Minneapolis, St. Paul, Minnesota, and Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Still no Phoenix, so I guess the desert dwellers uh, just don't rate. Hmm. Anyway, that does it for this issue of X-Men, letters, bullpen, ephemera, and all. So there's that. But before we get out of here, let's do a letter from our own mailbag here. This one comes from Peter, and it's about X-Men number 22. Peter says, This episode contained an inspired crack a cow of an idea and a colossal faux pas of a miss. The crack a crack a was a waste of an hour to keep track of the letter X. This gives us another fun layer to check out each issue, and I'm curious how many reprints we might see and how they match up with their previous letters. The shameful blunder of this episode was not mentioning when the Human Torch faced off against Plant Man in Strange Tales 121 that Plant Man soundly defeated Johnny by pelting him with moist acorns. (laughs) Covered with dew, to quote Mr. Storm. Uh, How such a monumental footnote could be left out of a series purporting to be essential... (laughs) Beyond my fathoming And now I'm imagining the end of 2001 Which you probably haven't seen With a close-up on Johnny's face as he gasps out The Dew The Dew And no, I have not seen 2001 I, I know a little bit about it <laughs> I've done a little bit of the uh, the fake-ass research on it To uh, I, I kind of dig the, the conversation about that movie More than uh, actually sitting down to watch it um, I know that uh, Kubrick did... Uh, there's a lot of symbolism in there, apparently And I guess there's, like, footage from it that we've never seen So a lot of that stuff is... Or never seen officially, I should say So a lot of that is fun to kind of think about You know, kind of think about, kind of study So, But I've never actually seen it So I don't get the reference at all um, As for the Strange Tales issue, I didn't read it <laughs> Maybe if the Plant Man ever comes around again We'll do a uh, fake-ass comics history on him and uh, and figure out all his dewy goodness. We'll get we'll get to the bottom of that as best as we can here. And uh, Peter does mention here that yeah, I, I spent an hour um, noting all of the letter hacks in the letters pages here to see if there's any repre- repeats and, uh, and and like Peter said here, just tracking how they uh, how they match up with their previous letters here. If they're complaining about things that they're you know suddenly really really happy about and vice versa, it's a um, Probably a silly thing to do. It's not really much of a value-added thing for the show, but me being me, I, I kind of I kind of had to do it. <laughs> I wanted to see how these things worked out. I remember when I was uh, doing you know the Chris's on Infinite Earths thing every day with the DC comics, and it was always fun to see you know letters from people like Uncle Elvis and uh, T M Maple 
you know, TM Maple is one of the more prolific letter hacks out there. Uh, I know Bo Smith, uh, the writer, he he wrote a lot of letters, and it was always fun to see his name in there. Any any prose names are going to be fun to see. I'm reminded of a, a Jeff Johns letter that appeared in a DC comic during, I want to say, the mid to late 90s, which was very telling, at least in hindsight, as to what he did with certain characters. So I'm wondering if we're going to see some of that, and I'm really looking forward to seeing some more repeats and some more uh, professionals writing in it. I think it's gonna be it's gonna be cool. It's gonna be cool stuff. But uh, thank you so much for writing in, Peter, and to, for giving us that tidbit on the uh, the mighty plant man. That is all for the mailbag today. Let's hop into shoutouts here, where I thank the folks who have interacted and engaged with uh, the things I sent out on the social media over the past few days uh, in regards to the show, helping to spread the word and uh, I guess raise the profile of this little program here. Over on Twitter, I want to thank Chris Bailey, Dave Schultz, Billy D, The Long Box of Darkness, Walt Neeland, Ed Moore, Joe Crawford, Jeremiah, Let's Talk Gabby Kinney, The Long Box Crusade, Raul Gomez, Wayne Burroughs, Jacob Jones, Pat Sampson, The Scary Stuff Podcast, and Jason Colby. Over on Facebook, I want to thank Jeremiah, Pat Sampson, Jesse DeYoung, Billy D, Andrew Franklin, Walt Neeland, and Chris Bailey. Thank you all so much for helping to spread the word about this program and, uh, as I've threatened, I might I might be trying the Instagram thing again. So, uh, uh, like I said last time, prepare for me to say uh, from Instagram, I'd like to thank nobody because nobody really interacts with that stuff at all, unless it's uh, unless it's spoilers or uh, you know the the same cover of uh, Jim Lee X Men number one that you see about eighty five times a day. That's uh, about the size of it. Anyway, while I'm thanking people, I want to thank the patrons. I believe this is the first post-Patreon episode of uh, The Essential X-Lapsed. So if this is the only program in the X-Lapsed family of shows that you listen to, this might be the first time you're hearing about it. But uh, yes, I have finally uh, opened up a Patreon page, and I tell you, I'm absolutely overwhelmed with the uh, response to it. It's been... Very eye-opening and just very wonderful. Um, over there, if you do decide to sign up, that's uh, patreon.com slash xlaps. There is uh, quite a bit of exclusive content over there. Um, there are several ongoing shows. We have uh, xlaps.1, which takes a look at uh, the the Golden Age exploits of Marvel's first mutant. We're going you know, all in on the uh, history of mutants in the Marvel Universe. And we're starting even before... Marvel Comics number one with uh, the first appearances of Namor the Submariner, and it's it's been insane. That's a very very strange and wonderful <laughs> little story. There's also a uh, Patreon first show called Action Comics Daily Appendix, I think I'm calling it, where I'm going through the entirety of Action Comics Weekly again, with uh, special attention paid to uh, ephemera, back matter, uh, things like letters pages here to discuss. Just how these issues were received back when they were, I guess, initially received. I'm having a lot of fun revisiting that. I never thought I'd be doing Action Comics Weekly again. And here I am, just like uh, an issue in, and it's like putting on an old shoe. You know, it's very comfortable. And I don't know, it just kind of feels like home. (laughs) It feels like home. And I'm looking forward to being able to share that in an audio format and maybe reaching some uh, new ears and eyes for uh, the old Action Comics Daily project. So if that's your thing, that's all there at patreon.com slash xlapsed. And uh, I'd like to thank the folks who have decided to uh, to follow. I want to thank Andrew Franklin, Ed Moore, Walt Neeland, Jeremiah, Jason Colby, The Scary Stuff Podcast, Jesse D. Young, Damian, and Peter McPherson. 
Thank you all so much for believing in me and uh, this silly little comics project that uh, I've devoted so much of my time to. <laughs> it really does mean a lot. Now, with all that said, uh, let's get into contact information before we cut on out. Uh, if you want to reach me for any reason, feel free to do so. I'm easy to find, and uh, I'm usually very, very nice and uh, almost intimidated anytime somebody reaches out because I don't feel I'm worth it. But anyway, I'm on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com, or you can call into the X-Labs voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. Now, for blog posts and show notes, you can head over to chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can also join us on Facebook at 90s X-Men. We're up to 66 members there, which is really, really cool. Uh, also, for the complete audio archives, you can head to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, and that's available on any of your noise aggregation applications. Finally, of course, we do have the Patreon. That is patreon.com slash xlapsed. Lots of exclusive content, and it's still very much a work in progress because, uh, I really don't know what things to offer, so uh, if anybody out there has any suggestions on what to offer, please don't hesitate to reach out via the uh, avenues I, you know, just mentioned a minute ago. But I think that'll do it for today. I'd like to thank you all so much for sharing a little bit of your day with me today. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya! <laughs>